This is a great week to come for the first time. We're talking about circumcision for an hour. Keep coming this summer. We will be talking about sodomy, incest, and eventually adultery. So this is going to be a wild summer, uh, but it's all in scripture, and this is kind of part of uh, preaching verse by verse. We handle whatever text comes next in scripture, and uh, Genesis can be a bit of a scandalous book at times, but this, this morning, is not meant to be scandalous at all. When we get to the issues of Sodom and Gomorrah, or with the covenant with Abimelech, yes, there is scandal there, uh, but as bashful as this might make us, there is no scandal in this passage. We are talking about the sign of circumcision from the Abrahamic covenant. And rather than doing what I think is most often done and jumping to the New Testament to discuss circumcision in distinction with the Old Testament, we're going to try to focus most of our attention on the Old Testament, what this sign of circumcision meant to its original recipients, how it was used for 2,000 years before the New Testament ever came along. So our main point this morning is that God gives Abraham a sign of the covenant of promise, which guaranteed Abraham land, seed, and blessing. This is so that they will remember this promise. This sign would be cut into his flesh and into the flesh of all his male descendants until the covenant had been fulfilled. God would place his mark on Abraham and his seed so that all would remember. Even in times of silence, such as they are in today, the covenant of God and his faithfulness to his promises. Now in this passage, this is the second uh, section that God is speaking to Abraham. Remember, he began with saying, as for me, and then promised Abraham all that he is going to do in this covenant. Well, now he turns and he says, now as for you. But in speaking to Abraham, he often switches between the singular and the plural, meaning sometimes he's talking to just Abraham by himself. And at other times, he gathers in the whole concept of Abraham's lineage or descendants or his seed as it is put in Genesis. And so we want to pay attention. When is God speaking to Abraham specifically about a command that he's giving to Abraham to do? And when is this a command that God is commanding for all of the generations of Israel to continue to do? So in Genesis 17:9, God is speaking specifically to the one person, Abraham. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. So he is now expanding this covenant. It's cut with Abraham and it is going to continue generation after generation after generation, but it starts with this central figure of Abraham. Just like the world population starts with the central figure of Adam, and just like all those who are believers today are in the central figurehead of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So all who would be party to this covenant are under this central figurehead of Abraham. In verse 10, he's going to bring in this concept of plurality. He says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. This is not repeating what happened in verse 9. He is adding to it. Not only does Abraham keep this covenant, but every generation is going to keep this covenant. It is between me and you, plural, all of Abraham's seeds, and your seed after you. Now, I don't think and is the best 
word to use here, because if you notice, it's between me and you, plural, and your seed after you. Well, who is, who is the seed if not the plural you? This is probably better even. He is explaining who this plural you is. It is between me and you, even your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, because these are plurals, we need this word among, although it's not the most common word used or common translation used. This is a preposition in the Hebrew. It's a lamed, that little L-looking figure there. Normally, this means by. Now, in all of these cases, we don't see the agency. We don't see who is to do the circumcision or who is to do the cutting off of the person who disobeys at the end. Uh, normally, a Lamed here would say, okay, who is supposed to do this action that's in the passive? And so we might expect, and some have translated this, that every male by you, Abraham, shall be circumcised. But this is in the plural. We're not talking about by you. He's saying every male who is among you. This is a Lamed of association. Every male associated with you is to be circumcised. Now, if you're anything like me, this has stood out as random. Why circumcision of all the possible signs? I mean, all of the signs seem a little strange, but I think this is something about signs is that they do stand out. They're not normal. They're not common. The sign for the Noahic covenant was the rainbow. This, again, stands out in all of scripture, and the rainbow is very seldom mentioned in all of scripture. In fact, only in Genesis and Revelation does it ever show up. For the new covenant, we have this ceremony of communion where we remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross. For the Mosaic covenant, the sign of the Sabbath, keeping a day of rest among the Jewish people. Here we have a sign of circumcision. And it is not random. It has a very specific purpose. And in order to understand its purpose, because it's not told to us explicitly in the text, we have to look at the context. And the context here speaks of the seed promise. We're in the midst of Abraham realizing the seed promise, where God has promised him a descendant. And without being too explicit here, how do we get descendants physically? through human reproduction. And so this is why God is focused on this part in the flesh, to show Abraham that he is cutting off the flesh, because God is going to do this. Over and over and over again, God has shown Abraham, this is not going to be up to you to produce this descendant. It is going to be up to me. And so the context here is this seed promise. This sign enforces the idea that flesh cannot produce God's promised seed. It also has the, the uh, it also separates Israel outwardly from the world. This is going to be something distinct and different that they do. Now, circumcision wasn't performed only by Israelis in Israel. There was circumcision elsewhere, but the performance of the circumcision was very different. Nowhere else among their neighbors were infants circumcised. They were always circumcised at puberty. Also, 
Circumcision for males was never the complete removal of the foreskin. It was always simply what's called a dorsal slit, which is just slicing the skin. What God is having Israel do here is not only different in its look, but it's different in its timing as well. What is not in the context, and this is most often what people will point to, especially in our modern day of medicine, they like to point out that circumcision may have benefits of cleanliness, especially in protection from disease, especially sexually transmitted diseases. But I would like to really drive home that this is absolutely nowhere in the context. Nowhere does God ever say that this is why the Jews would perform circumcision. Now, circumcision will continue throughout Israel's history, including as they are about to enter into the land of Canaan after the Exodus. And in that land, they're told not to fall into the sexual practices of these Canaanite tribes. But let me point out one of the dangers in saying, well, God is giving them circumcision here to protect them from sexually transmitted diseases later when they enter into Canaan. God doesn't want them engaging in those sexually or in those, in those sexual acts. So why would he protect their flesh, their bodies, while they are performing those things? If they are going to do those things, they're going to die along with the Canaanites for doing them. God is not here protecting their flesh so that they can sin more without the consequences of those sins. This is a sign. It is not a medical procedure as a preventative surgery. This is a sign in their flesh, cut to show them God's covenant that he cut with Abraham. So then why circumcision of all the possible signs or all the possible things that we could cut or remove? This does show removal. Now, this is an interesting concept. And uh, having spent more time than probably any of you would want listening to linguistics lectures at college, this is very fascinating to me because in sociolinguistics, we were posed this question, how do you show something in absence without words? How do you show the concept of negativity? We were given some examples. There would be a picture. I remember one clearly where there is a giraffe in the picture and says, okay, how do you say without words, there's no giraffe? Well, you can show a picture of an empty field, but how do you know we're speaking of giraffes in the context? So we've, we had one picture where the giraffe was outlined rather than drawn in, in full outline. How do you show that something is missing? Will you show it is missing where it should be, where you would expect to see something, it's not there. One example might be, you know, those, those stickers that you see on the back of cars where it's got a family, a father, a mother, children, 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 sometimes dogs and sometimes cats. Well, you can show absence on that by having one of the parents missing. You would expect to see them there and their absence would stand out. Well, here, God is showing absence, and he does so by having Abraham and having all of the Jews remove something that is expected to be there. But now notice this. How do you show something secret and inward in the flesh? Of all the things that could be removed, God has Abraham remove what is supposed to be concealed and hidden. What is an outward sign in the flesh 
but which others don't see. In fact, this even goes back to the Adamic covenant where God tells them to clothe their nakedness, where he covers them with loincloths. Not only is this a sign in their flesh, but it's covered by the promise of atonement. Also, this is exactly the organ through which Jewishness is naturally transmitted. How do you get more Jews? How do you get more Hebrews? Through human reproduction. And so every time this occurs, this reproduction occurs, they are reminded of their covenant. This may even have implications on the virgin birth, where God is having the male circumcise his own organ. And eventually it is going to be through the seed of the woman that the Messiah will be born. God does not even need the male in this case to produce the coming Messiah. Also, I want to point out that the sign of circumcision also correlates with the divine institutions that we studied at the beginning of Genesis in our study through chapters 1 through 11. Here we have man given a command, something that they are supposed to do for this sign. For the rainbow, there is no doing. There is not something that man is supposed to do in order for the sign to be reproduced. But here, God is telling them to labor in order to produce this sign. Even the Sabbath is not, it has to do with labor, but it has to do with not laboring rather than a positive command to do something. It also correlates with the divine institution of marriage. Remember, this is a sign that no one is supposed to see, but in this covenant relationship of marriage, the wife does see this sign cut in the flesh. It has implications for the institution of family as well, because this is performed from parents to child. Every time a father circumcises one of his sons, he not only remembers his own connection to the covenant, but he has to make a positive action towards remembering that covenant in his children in the next generation as well. And this is exactly what Israel was told to do, to train their children, to teach their children God's word, especially his covenants. It is going to have a connection to government. Circumcision will be regulated under Israel's theocracy. Israel is at this time in the text, not a theocracy, but it is moving towards becoming a nation. God is carving out a people for his own purposes, for this purpose of instituting a kingdom over creation. And this is going to be part of their law. It has implications for nationalism as well. This is going to function like a border for Israel. They will remain distinct even in the outward appearance of their flesh from the rest of the world. God is carving out this people to maintain their uniqueness, and through them will come the seed, the Messiah. And so in Genesis 17.9, God says, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you through their generations. Now, this is the English translation, and it is a perfectly good translation, but sometimes when we use 
a word that is more understandable to us, we lose the train that is carried throughout all of Genesis because this word descendants is seed. This is the, or it shall be between you and your seed after you. This does correlate to the seed promise that God has given Abraham, not just that Abraham himself would have a descendant from his own body, but the idea of this far descendant as well. The seed promised to the woman in Genesis 3.15, the coming savior, the Messiah. Through all of these generations of Abraham's seed, they are to continue in this covenant sign. They are to keep the covenant throughout all of the generations. Now, what does it mean here to keep this covenant? This is an unconditional covenant. God gave the covenant to Abraham without any conditions for things to do. But now, this is the second time we've seen Abraham commanded to do something. What is the consequences then if he doesn't keep or obey this covenant? Now, I, I do think the translators made an excellent choice here in saying keep instead of obey. Because they are supposed to keep this covenant as in maintaining it within their generations, the memory of it, remembering and never forgetting this unconditional covenant that they have been given. Performing this sign of circumcision doesn't validate the covenant, but it validates their experience within the covenant. This will belong to Israel for every generation whether or not generations fail or succeed. In fact, we see that in the generation of the Exodus, the second generation, who were not circumcised by their parents. What happened? Joshua had them all circumcised before they entered into the land so that they would be obedient to this covenant despite the fact that their parents were not. Failure to keep this covenant throughout these generations does not exclude the later generations from entering into the experience of these covenants, but it will be punished if they fail to keep this covenant. Now every male who is among you, plural, all of the seed of Abraham is to be circumcised and it is to be a sign, sometimes called a token of the covenant. Now, not all of the covenants have signs that go along with them. In fact, some of the covenants may have signs, but they're not explicitly called signs in Scripture. For example, the luminaries, they're called signs, but they're not explicitly tied to the covenant. But this occurs during creation. These signs in the skies for time and for seasons, we might say that the time and the seasons are the signs of the Edenic covenant. But this is going beyond the text. The same with the Adamic covenant is clothing the sign of this covenant. When we see people wearing clothing, we can remember back to Adam and Eve's being clothed by God and the need that they had to sacrifice an animal in order to cover them. Now we can infer these signs, but they're not given to us explicitly in the text. So when God makes a sign explicit in the text, we ought to pay attention. We ought to remember this sign and to use it how God has told us to use it. Now we're dealing here with the Abrahamic covenant sign of circumcision, but we're going to look at some parallels. For example, the Noahic covenant, we're given the sign of the rainbow. What is the sign supposed to do? Who is it for? Who is supposed to see it? And what should they do when they see it? 
In Genesis 9, 9, God says, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants or your seed after you and with every living creature. This was made not just with humanity, but with the entire creation. That is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all that comes out of the ark, even every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off. God promises to never again destroy the life of all humanity. All flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. Now, this structure seems very similar to what we're seeing in Genesis 17. This is the sign. He says, I set my bow in the cloud. He is doing this action. And it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth, and it shall come about When I bring a cloud over the earth, God is performing the sign that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant. It is to remind God of his covenant. Now, we often think of the rainbow, and if we think about it in the proper context of Genesis, we're tempted to think this is a sign given to us to remind us that God is not going to destroy the earth. But this actually isn't the sign we were given to remember that God is not going to destroy the earth. We can see it in parallel to God's purpose for it, which is to remind him. And when we see the sign that reminds him, we are also reminded. But we should look back to Genesis 8.22 to see God's sign for us that he is not going to destroy the earth. As long as we see seasons continuing, hot and cold, harvest and planting, as long as we see the sun rising, the moon setting, we are to remember that God's promise is that he will not destroy this creation until he has fulfilled its purpose. Now, I think this is important because these are signs we see every single day, every single week, every month, every year we see these. We don't see a rainbow as often. But God being everywhere does see a rainbow far more often than we do. The rainbow is a covenant reminder for God to remember that he is not going to destroy the earth. It says, when the bow is in the, cl- in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God will perform the sign and it is for God to remember. How about the Mosaic covenant? For the Mosaic covenant, the sign is the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. We see this in Exodus 31, where they're given the command to keep the Sabbath. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. This word observe is the same as keep in the previous, uh, or in Genesis 17 that we saw, keep my covenant. Here is keep my Sabbaths, or observe my Sabbaths. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know. This is a purpose statement. For the purpose that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Sanctifies means to separate. 
to make holy. This is the same idea as the circumcision. It separates them or sets them apart. So does keeping the Sabbath separate them, keeping them apart from the other nations who do not have this custom. So in their activity and in their physical appearance now, they are distinct from the other nations. Therefore, you are to observe, once again, keep, shamar, the Sabbath. For it is holy to you. Holy is sanctified, the same word. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. The same way of saying the same thing twice. To be put to death is to be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy or sanctified, set aside to the Lord. This does not mean, holy to the Lord does not mean that it is for the Lord. It is for the people of Israel to remember the Lord. It is set aside for him. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe, keep the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant or an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. This sign of keeping the Sabbath is for Israel to remember their covenant with God. Notice again, this is something that they perform, and it is for the purpose of their memory, and it's something that is done very frequently. Every single week, the Sabbath comes around. And in fact, they even have Sabbath years, where every seven years, they are to let their fields lay fallow. This concept of Sabbath is so very intimately tied together with the concept of Israel. And each time they do this, or each time they are breaking this and should be conscious of it, they are conscious of the sign of the covenant. We have the same thing in the new covenant. Now, I encourage you to, if you don't watch any of the other spiritual life lessons that we have now for the Tuesday nights, go and watch the last one because we talked about the new covenant. We talked a lot about the new covenant and it is for Israel, but we are partakers in this covenant. And today, both the remnant of Israel, believing Jews and believing Gentiles who have become one in the church, practice this covenant sign of communion, which reminds us every time we do it of the new covenant. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, it says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, we do communion here every month, but we're not told anywhere how often we ought to be doing it. It's a general rule of thumb. No, probably no more frequently than once a week, no less frequently than once a year. That's kind of what is... Um, what the church has decided here. Uh, but there's no set number of times we ought to be doing this, but we ought to do it in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember what he did as we await for him to return. And when he returns, this new covenant is going to be fulfilled completely. Right now, we are experiencing the blessings aspect of it. But there are physical promises in the new covenant that will occur to Israel. And as Romans 11 tells us, if right now our blessings are so much, while Israel is cut off from the experience of this covenant, how much more wonderful will they be when Israel is brought into this covenant? And so that's what we look forward to. We look forward to Christ's return because it's at that time that all of Israel will be saved. And it's at that time where the new covenant we get to experience fully, where not only our spiritual life will be changed, but our physical life as well. So the sign of the new covenant communion is for us to remember what God is doing in his covenant program, the salvation that he died to provide to us. But this Abrahamic covenant, this sign of circumcision, we're nowhere told in the text who it is for and what the purpose of it is. But we can see through the other covenants and how God uses signs, that the person performing the sign, it is for their benefit. Some have proposed that Abraham and his descendants are supposed to do this to remind God of his covenant. That every time a Jewish couple copulates, God is supposed to look at it and remember, oh yeah, I'm supposed to give them descendants. This would be inconsistent with the rest of the signs that God gives for covenants. Israel is to do this so that Israel will remember God's covenant with them and God's faithfulness and God's promise. This is why he says, keep my covenant, maintain this covenant in every single generation so that no generation forgets what God promised to Abraham and what God promised to all of the descendants of Abraham. God also specifies, he gives them very specific instructions on how they are to do this because they're doing it in a different way than the rest of the nations around them. Circumcision is not a global custom, but it is a Middle Eastern custom. Even at the time of Abraham, it appears to have already been in practice. God is specifying how to do it because the other nations do it differently. So he tells them where to circumcise their children. He says, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. Now to us, this seems redundant. Circumcision only happens in one place. But this, uh, this circumcision is to cut or to cut off. Where everyone else is simply slitting, here they are told that entire piece of flesh, cut it off all of it without exception. This indicates full removal of that portion of skin. Now here in Jeremiah 9.25, we see that other nations were performing circumcisions. Now the problem here is, this only goes back to about 600 BC, 700 BC maybe, and the custom was already well ingrained, but we're asking you to go all the way back to Abraham. 2000 BC. Whether or not these customs were performed in all of these nations, especially since some of these nations don't even exist yet, is in question. We don't know if all the nations were, but we can be fairly certain that Egypt was performing circumcisions. 
But Jeremiah 9.25 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised. So here's the context. Everyone who's circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Down at the bottom of this verse, we can see what uncircumcised means. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. This is different than circumcision in the flesh. So they are circumcised in their flesh, but not in their heart. They are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. But all of these nations are brought into this pattern. They are all circumcised in the flesh, but not in the heart. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert. This probably here means the Midianites at least. Who clip the hair on their temples for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. Here in a little further back, going back to about 1446 BC, we see that Moses' wife Zipporah is familiar with this uh, custom as well. Now, once again, there's a caveat here. It's possible that Zipporah was instructed in this covenant by Moses, we're not told. But it is also possible here that she is already accustomed to this sign of circumcision or this custom of circumcision. In Exodus 4.24 says, Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him, that is Moses, and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah, who is a Midianite, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. The Midianites were those who were inhabiting the desert who practiced clipping the hair on their temples. Now, Zipporah performed circumcision in a different way than the other nations were doing so. The other nations either would tear, would scrape away with their fingernail, or would burn off the foreskin. Yeah, it's horrible. But Zipporah takes a flint, a stone that's been chipped away from other stone. You really cannot get more sterile than this because this stone has been covered by other stone until the moment it's chipped away. This is a very sterile way to perform a circumcision. It is a, going to be a very clean cut, whereas the tearing and scraping makes a, an awful scab that doesn't heal well. The uh, burning obviously makes a terrible scab. In fact, this, this uh, burning was reintroduced during the Holocaust as well, so that Jews wouldn't be easily identified as Jews. They would still be able to circumcise themselves, but the scab would appear as an uncircumcised foreskin. And so they were able to sometimes be faithful to their covenant under Abraham while still evading this obvious marker of Jewishness uh, in the Jewish or in the uh, German world. The problem is, this is a very dangerous way of performing a circumcision that leads to lots of infection. It's not the most dangerous way that the Jews tried to exercise this, though. They noticed that a lot of the babies were getting uh, diseased from, especially the Jews began to tear away with fingernails. That was one of the ways that they did this, and they would get infected. So they would try to sterilize it with wine. They would try to suck out the blood so that they wouldn't get infected, but then they would get mouth germs that would infect the wounds anyways. So really, I think the, the point in all of that is God knows how best 
to do the things he's commanding us to do. Every modification or improvement we try to make on this process only makes it worse. In our modern day, we do the same thing. We just veil it in science. Rather than circumcising on the eighth day, which is a fantastic day to do it, as we'll see in a second, we do it on the first day when the baby has no vitamin K in its body or next to no vitamin K, no clotting factors. So the babies will bleed and bleed and bleed. And so we have to inject them with vitamin K. We're playing God. God knows how he made the body. God did it for a purpose, and he said circumcise on the eighth day. It is the best day to circumcise. Now, there's lots of reasons why hospitals might do this. Hard to get them back, to come back on the eighth day. Easier just to do it while they're already there. In Korea, it's become quite a problem because really in the whole world, there's only three nations that circumcise more than 25% of their children. That's Israel, America, and South Korea. And all of those circumcise more than 75% of their children. In South Korea, it's not a religious practice as we think of it here. It is a medical procedure. In fact, in order to enter into the military, you have to be circumcised, and all males are required to enter into the military. In fact, I had a friend when I was about 22 who had to be circumcised at 22 in order to enter the military. But here's the problem. In Korea, the hospitals sell those foreskins to uh, cosmetic companies who create face creams out of it. It is a multi-million dollar industry. And this is why it's promoted. And so to make sure that you get that foreskin so they don't go home and not circumcise their children, they make you do it on the first day. And in order to do it on the first day without increasing the risk of death, they have to inject your kid with fake vitamins. Why don't we just do it God's way? Through all of history, we've tried to not do it God's way. Let's just do it God's way. Now, that's not here supposed to be a promotion of Gentile circumcision. We'll get to that in a minute, too. Only the Jews here are commanded to be circumcised. But notice as well, when Joshua circumcises all the males before they enter into the land of Canaan, how does he do it? With a flint knife. A sharp blade that is sterile. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Okay, so who is supposed to be circumcised? The other nations around are performing both male and female circumcision. God says every male. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised. This is different than the rest of the generation or the rest of the nations. It will set them apart. They're to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, as I mentioned already, children are born with low vitamin K levels or prothrombin, and it goes even lower between days two and seven. It's not until day eight where the body not only hits 100% of its vitamin K, but goes up to between 110 and 120%. Clotting is best on day eight. Very unlikely that these children will bleed out. In fact, even without this, it's pretty unlikely that they'll bleed out. Very low numbers in like 20,000 children, they get some more like 7 to 10 who will bleed significantly. That doesn't even mean death. So 
circumcising on the eighth day, it's almost as if God designed the body and knew how it works. Some who don't believe scripture, don't believe God as the uh, creator, but still recognize this as a Jewish custom, have theorized that the Israelis uh, attempted to perform thousands and thousands and thousands of circumcisions, observing every day and hour that they did it to find out what the best time was. That is a lot more far-flung than just believing God made the body, God knows how it works, God told them, do it on the eighth day. And it works. But now here's what's interesting, because so far God has focused so much on this covenant being with Abraham and his physical descendants. But here he says, and a servant who is born in the house and who is bought with money from a foreigner who is not of your seed. A servant who is born in your house and who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So now are these children who are not part of Abraham's seed, are they also brought into this covenant? Yes. And I think this has implications for us as the church who are brought into participating in their spiritual blessings, but not their physical blessings. But these are brought into both their physical and their spiritual blessings. But here is the caveat, and it is so important to realize, there is no concessions made in Israel for foreign cultures. This is not a mixing pot where you get to maintain your customs from your pagan nation. When you come into Israel and you become part of Israel, you take on Israel's identity. You do not bring in your foreign gods. You do not bring in your foreign practices. They are to become part of Israel. And so those who are born in their houses, these generations that come through these slaves that are purchased from foreigners, they become assimilated into the nation of Israel. After a few generations, they won't be distinct anymore. They will have married in. They will have uh, not maintained their own isolation like Israel did in Egypt. They will become part of the nation of Israel. Well, now we come to the last verse here, or the last part here. What is the significance of this? Through all these generations, we've talked about this quite a bit already. We have a result statement. Thus, shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The purpose of this is that this covenant, which is invisible, have a visible appearance. You can't see this promise, especially in generations and times where this promise does not appear to be fulfilled. Because God is going to fulfill it in the long run. And in the short run, fulfillment or experience of that covenant is going to depend on obedience because God will regulate the blessings and the cursings of this or the blessings of this covenant through the blessings and cursings of the Mosaic law. And so if Israel is unfaithful and doesn't feel the experiences of these covenants of this covenant, that does not mean that God is unfaithful. And they can remember that because it's even cut into their flesh that God is going to be faithful to them even when they are unfaithful. This is an everlasting covenant. So once again, we have this term olam, which connects it with the context of the time. So as long as the world remains, 
this covenant with Israel will, will, will remain. And as long as the seed of Israel remains, this covenant will remain with them. And now as long as this covenant remains and the seed remains and the earth remains, they're to continue to do this. They are to continue as long as this covenant is unfulfilled. To carve this covenant into their flesh. To remember the covenant. Now, in the Mosaic law, they are also told to circumcise their children. This is not an additional law, but this is in, a, in effect telling them as part of the Mosaic law to remember the Abrahamic law. The Abrahamic law regulates their experience of the Abraham, the Mosaic law regulates their experience of the Abrahamic law's promises. And so, in order to experience those blessings, they're to be faithful to the law of Moses. And so they have to be faithful to the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But the Mosaic law has been fulfilled. The Abrahamic law has not. In both covenants, they are told to circumcise. And so every Jewish child circumcised today is not circumcised under the Mosaic law, but under the Abrahamic law. And they are to continue to do that today. This is still a covenant command for them. It is not a covenant command for you. Now, this is not an injunction against this. But if you are a Gentile and you choose to circumcise your children, know that you are not doing this in obedience to the Abrahamic covenant. You can't because it's not for you. In fact, in Galatians, this is the one time we're jumping into the New Testament here. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says that he did not circumcise Titus because he was a Greek. He says, but not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now notice this is compelled. He could have chosen to be, but he wasn't forced to be. He wasn't told to be. He wasn't pressured to be because he's not under the Abrahamic covenant. This is a covenant of physical blessings and spiritual blessings that will be fulfilled to and through Israel. Titus benefits from these blessings, but he is not the seed who is told to keep this covenant sign in his flesh. However, in Acts 16, we see that Paul even recommends to Timothy that he be circumcised. And he notes that Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And now here is why Paul uh, suggested to Timothy that he be circumcised, because really here he has the option. His mother is the Jew. His father is a Greek. He could really go either way here. He could claim his Jewish heritage under his mother, but he's not necessarily under the injunction of the Abrahamic covenant to be circumcised because his father is a Gentile. He says, but his father was a Greek and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. But Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. 
Timothy would be better able to minister and to preach to these Jews if they accepted him as one of their own. And if he stood apart in the flesh, they would have a hard time accepting him in the spirit, especially as they are trying to bring them into faith in their Jewish Messiah. Christianity, the church, is a Jewish institution which Gentiles have been adopted into. When we are preaching, especially preaching or teaching Jews, we ought to remind them of the Jewishness of this faith. It is their Messiah whom we have received. And there is nothing more Jewish than accepting the Messiah that God has promised them for millennium. But we ought to know that not being under this Abrahamic covenant, not being required to circumcise or you know, to circumcise our children as Gentiles, this does not put us in any different footing than the Jews in the blessings of this covenant. Paul says in Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Notice, first of all, he's telling us to remember that prior to where we are now, we were Gentiles in the flesh. We were not part of these blessings. We were cut off. We were separated from them. Something has brought us in. It wasn't the performance of circumcision in our flesh. This wasn't even done. This did not bring us into receiving these blessings and experiencing the new covenant blessings. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. A better translation of this rather than the Greek Christ should be Messiah. We were separated from Messiah. Israel always had the promise of this coming Messiah. We as Gentiles did not. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Excluded from this nation. Now notice it doesn't say the ethnic Israel as it could but the commonwealth. Why? Because slaves were also brought in under this covenant if they became part of Israel. But we as Gentiles, maintaining that distinct identity and not proselytizing to become Jews, were excluded from that commonwealth of Israel. And we were strangers to the covenant of promise. It might even be better stated here, we were estranged from these co this covenant of promise. This is the Abrahamic covenant. We were estranged from it. We had no hope. This is why Israel has this covenant, to give them hope because of God's past faithfulness and promise of future faithfulness. And we were without God in the world. Where God was present with them, he was not present with us. He was not present with the Gentiles in the same way as he was with Israel. Paul says, but now, in Christ Jesus, this is how we have become uh, no longer separated from. It is in Christ Jesus. You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not by our own blood, not through circumcising ourselves or our children. This did not bring us into these covenants. This did not make us partakers in the blessings. For he himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. God, through Jesus Christ, has made both the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles one group in this age, and that is the church. We have both come into the body of the Messiah, and both have been made one new man in him. And he did this by breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall. What is the barrier of the dividing wall? It's not even circumcision. This is something in the flesh. He did this by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He abolished the enmity. He did not abolish the Mosaic law. He fulfilled the Mosaic law. Thereby he abolished what stood as a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles when the Gentiles came to believe. The Mosaic law was fulfilled. Therefore, the separation between Jews and Gentiles does not exist in the church. So that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it, having put to death the enmity. Remember Israel is being circumcised here. And part of the result of that is that they are separated, distinguished in the flesh from their neighbors. God is isolating them so that he can do his work with them. And in the church, this isolation is not necessary. Now, the Jews still do have physical blessings that we are not made party to. They will receive the physical tract of land of Israel in the millennial kingdom. They will have the physical Messiah reigning from their central throne in Jerusalem. We will benefit from all of these physical blessings, but we are made partakers of the spiritual blessings. This is what Romans 15 tells us. Now there is, like I said, consequences here for disobedience. There are consequences if a Jew in any successive generation chooses not to take this sign in his flesh. It says, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If we remember from Exodus 31, what does it mean to be cut off from your people? It means to be put to death. Now, this is even emphasized in that God, or, uh, yeah, God does not use the word ish here like he does in Leviticus 17 when he's talking about separation as in exile. He says ish for man rather than nefesh for person. We remember what nefesh is. It speaks of the physical but unseen life. The ghost in the machine, you might say. We have flesh and we have nefesh, the spirit, the soul, rather. This soul is cut off from among his people. God separates him and separation is this concept of death. It is one in the same. And so the result of failing to circumcise, failing to be faithful to this covenant, is not an eternal consequence, but a temporal one physical death. Now we in the church have similar consequences. There is an excellent parallel here. 
where we are now partakers in the new covenant and our salvation flows through this covenant. If we break this covenant, we might have temporal consequences. In fact, this is what 1 Corinthians 11 is about. As Paul is instructing them how to properly observe communion, and he says, if you turn this into one of your love feasts, some of you are dying because of this. Your physical life is being cut short because you are tampering with this sign of the covenant that God has given you. The same thing is happening here. God says, do not fail in your generations to do this. Why? Because the generations will have a responsibility to receive the king of God's choosing. They need to remember this covenant, this covenant of the promised seed, so that they can be faithful to it and God to be vindicated over his creation. God will bring it to be. But each generation has the choice. Do they want to participate or do they want to rebel? Notice in Exodus 4.24 what's going on because we're not explained in the context. It stands out as striking unless we understand what cut off means in Genesis 17. And notice as well, this is not telling Abraham, if someone refuses to be circumcised, put him to death. This says he shall be cut off. This is a passive voice. That means the agent who is doing this action is not stated. It's not stated because this is God's prerogative. He is going to cut off the one who is unfaithful. And so in Exodus 4.24, as God is about to fulfill a portion of this covenant or maintain this covenant to Israel through Moses, Moses, who is not circumcised, comes under God's wrath. It says, now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. Now notice here, who is uncircumcised right here? Moses' son. He has failed to circumcise his son, and God is going to put him to death for it. Why? Because this, this young boy, who's actually not so young here, but it is the father's responsibility to circumcise his child. It's not the eight-day-old Jew who is going to be put to death. He is going to have the opportunity to be faithful where his father was not, just like the second generation of Israel coming out of the Exodus. None of their parents circumcised them, but God gave them the opportunity before entering the land to be faithful to this covenant. And so Zipporah, faithful where Moses is not, circumcises her youngest son and says, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So let, or so he let him alone. God let Moses alone. At that time, she said, Zipporah said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, this has its parallel. And we see how God works through disobedience, especially where a government is not present because God allows mankind to participate in his labor, in his work. But where there is no government structure to enact a death penalty, God does not put that prerogative on mankind. Notice here in Genesis 4.13 when Cain kills his brother. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. 
Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And here's his other concern. Whoever finds me will kill me. What does God say? So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Well, in Genesis 9, God's going to say, if somebody sheds the blood of another man, his blood is to be shed. What's the difference here? In Genesis 9, God is instituting the governmental prerogative of capital punishment in order to protect life from those who do not value life. But here, there is no man who has the right to take Cain's life from him, even though Cain has taken the life from another man. God is going to install that through the divine institution of government, but he has not yet. So the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Here's another sign. We're not told what it is. Dangerous uh, claims have been made in the past that have led to racism uh, where it should not have been. Some people have said that black skin is the sign of Cain. Well, Cain's line was wiped out in the flood. Cain's line does not exist today. So here in Genesis 9.35, we have a development of this, uh, this requirement of execution. It says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I will give all to you as I give the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Now here for eating blood, God says he will require man's life. But he develops a bit here in 6. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. God is instituting the prerogative on human government to execute those who murder. To protect life, you end the life of that one who is ending others' lives. The world's wisdom, as James 3 might, might argue, says this is backwards. That we ought to let this man live, even though he might go and kill others. They say that God's wisdom is backwards. Well, this is the very idea of human wisdom versus divine wisdom. God's wisdom doesn't always make sense to us. Actually, the more you think about that, it does make a lot of sense. But in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, what do we see? Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Exodus 19, 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is now the Mosaic covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is in the process of turning this bloodline of Abraham into a nation of its own. It is not yet a nation. In fact, God is going to bring the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's sons, the third generation from Abraham. He's going to bring them into Egypt for the purpose of cultivating a nation. And when he brings them out, they're a massive horde. And he is establishing in them a nation with a constitution, the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic law will give them the responsibility of executing for certain criminal offenses. But Abraham is not here told to effect the execution of the one 
who breaks this sign. This sign is also very similar in its context here to the very first sin, where Adam is told that from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil he is not to eat, but from all the other trees he is to eat. He's given a singular command, he is to do this, and the consequence of failure is death, spiritual death, where he is separated from God, cut off from God, the result of which is physical death. Well, Abraham is now being given in every generation through his seeds the opportunity that they be obedient to God and live or to disobey God and die. The difference here is every generation gets this new chance. This is magnified in an incredible way in the Gospels where the gospel generation of Israel failed to keep God's covenant. That's why when Jesus comes and when John comes, they're telling Israel to repent, repent, repent. What are they repenting of? They are changing their mind about the errors that they had added to God's word, which caused them to miss their Messiah when he came. Jesus begins to call this generation a wicked and evil, a backward generation. But what does he promise? He says to another generation, they will be faithful. In Deuteronomy 30, we see this prophesied, and this is why this is a sign throughout the generations, because a generation is coming who will be faithful. It says, so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessings and the cursings of the Mosaic law, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now the issue here in Deuteronomy 30, well, we're not told in the context, but we know through the progress of Revelation, the problem here is that they reject their Messiah when he comes. And God promises them that if they turn and receive that Messiah, then he will gather them back. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Notice this is the physical blessings of the covenant. When they become faithful to them, God will deliver on this covenant. God will not forget this covenant, and it will be passed from generation to generation until the generation to whom the kingdom is offered is faithful to receive it. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Now this we'll probably get into a little bit more next week, but circumcision is a physical sign of a spiritual reality, or at least it should be. Being separated physically from the world, remember, is not the, is not the whole concept, but being, but being separated spiritually as well. In fact, in Genesis 13, when we saw Abraham's separation from Lot, we noted that his separation was first spiritual and second physical. This physical separation that Israel is to enact is supposed to be a secondary result from their primary result of spiritual separation from the world. But that is where they failed. They continued to do the outward exercise of circumcision in the flesh, but they were not circumcised or cut off from the world and brought to God. They were not sanctified 
to God. And so God is going to do that. This is his delivery of the new covenant to Israel when their heart is circumcised. It says, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is why this sign is to be remembered throughout their generations. Throughout their generations. And this is why in Joshua 4 through 5, we see that Joshua is faithful to remember this. And this second generation where the first failed in the wilderness, the second generation was faithful. So in the Gospels, the first generation fails to receive their Messiah, but the second generation to whom this offer of the kingdom will be made in the future will be faithful. They will enter into the kingdom. They will receive these covenants. And the sign of circumcision will maintain them until that time, reminding them constantly of this covenant with God. And so, to conclude, God gives Abraham a sign of the covenant of promise, which guaranteed Abraham land, seed, and blessing. The blessing we have become partakers in, the land and the seed, belongs solely to them. He is their descendant, their personal king for their nation, and it is their national land. This sign would be cut into his flesh and into the flesh of all his male descendants until the covenant had been fulfilled. God would place his mark on Abraham and his seed so that all would remember, even in times of silence, the covenant of God and his faithfulness to his promises. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the Abrahamic covenant. We are thankful for the promise of blessing and especially the promise of eternal blessing, which required that you would deliver eternal salvation. We thank you that you have broken down the barrier that stood between us and receiving these blessings, that barrier of the Mosaic law. We thank you that you have fulfilled it and that your word has been vindicated just as creation itself will be vindicated as these covenants are fulfilled in the kingdom. We pray that the kingdom would come, that Israel would receive their Messiah, that Jesus would rescue us from wrath, and that the world would be ruled in righteousness and justice. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.